This is Data Brussels. It's the end of June, which means that barring some highly improbable sets of circumstances and actions, uh, we are at the end of the road of the discussion about extension of the transition period. It's been a bit of a while since I've talked with you, largely because there wasn't really anything useful to say uh, in the last weeks. Um, negotiations had been plodding along with not much effect. It turns out that doing uh, trade debates and negotiations on Zoom is not really the way to go, which is a shock to precisely nobody at all. But really, we find ourselves now at a point where we are out of the discussion of uh, extension. Um, and really, I think it's worth reflecting on how we got this so wrong, because I certainly have talked to you in the past, uh, back in April, about how an extension was shortly just round the corner and that was all going to be fine. And very clearly, that was me projecting my preferences and my analysis of the situation onto uh, the reality of it. Now, why did I do that? Well, uh, it was clear... Uh, even before transition started, that time was going to be a major problem. That for any comparable discussion uh, between uh, trading partners about a similar kind of deal, we were looking at many years rather than the 11 months that were available uh, in this particular case. And then we had the extensions of Article 50, and then we had the delays of coronavirus. Now, um, that really, I think, reflects an underestimation on my part of the extent to which Brexit became, if you like, a lifeline for the government during lockdown. Remember that uh, this has been a major disruption to everything that the government has done, and every government has done around the world. And uh, at a time when so many things were changing, to have a fixity on the timetable for Brexit was uh, useful to number 10. And, you know, I think it's easy to forget quite how central uh, that timetable was to the uh, campaign for the general election in December last year. That slogan of Bre get Brexit done was symbolic, but it was also substantive. Know, that here was a commitment uh, made very earnestly, very publicly, that this would be the timescale on which we would get past this issue into all the other good stuff that the government promised it would uh, do. Ironically, the difficulties that the government has faced with uh, lockdown uh, in terms of uh, public policy, in terms of uh, limiting the impact on the NHS, the number of lives lost uh, in comparison to other countries, has merely redoubled that commitment and determination to stick to the timeline. As I've said, critics of the timetable were critics long before the timetable even got uh, set in stone. So long before uh, the Article 50 withdrawal agreement was uh, signed, it was uh, clear that uh, P 
people were saying, including me, that uh, this wasn't going to be enough time. So to give uh, those critics of the government uh, another stick with which to beat it by saying, oh, well, we do actually need some more time, and that you're pretending it's about the coronavirus, but really it's just a reflection of what you've always known, was uh, a step too far for uh, Boris Johnson uh, and his office. So the language was very inflexible, apart from that period when Johnson and Cummings were out of action and uh, self-isolating in their own respective ways. Um, And... uh, the point at which they returned, you saw that language tightening back up. So uh, we can't say that we weren't warned that they wouldn't do it, uh, but certainly it ran against the experience of being forced to make choices. Maybe this is the final factor that we didn't think about, is that the factors that led to extensions and adaptations in the past are not present anymore. There are no grounds for legal challenge. There are pressures in Parliament, but in the presence of an 80-seat majority, why would you give way to opponents? So actually, the relevant group in Parliament is no longer opposition parties, but rather Tory backbenches. And for those uh, MPs who have a very uh, unified view of Uh, the need to press on uh, with uh, the timetable and with the process, certainly much more unified than before the general election, the incentive is to keep them on board by sticking to the timetable rather than making any kind of accommodation. Now all of that leaves us here in a situation where that transition period will end at the end of December. Now, it's conceivable that uh, there'll be a belated decision by both parties that more time is needed, say in uh, September or October, because uh, progress is being made on covering the gaps. Um, But then they won't have the simple option that they've had until the end of today. Now, uh, legal colleagues will tell you that there are ways around this, that you can uh, amend the treaty, uh, the withdrawal agreement that regulates this, but that requires unanimity and ratification by all parties involved, uh, and that would not be an easy path whatsoever. So I think we have to assume that the timetable is the timetable. And this leads me to a second point, which is it really exposes how much we've spent, and I'm aware I've spent seven minutes talking about this. We talk about the timetable and the process rather than about the substance. Yesterday there was a letter from uh, Marc Francois, chair of the European uh, Research Group, uh, that uh, is the, if you like, hardline 
group of backbenchers to uh, Monsieur Barnier at the Commission, uh, explaining why the EU has been unreasonable and all the things it would need to change if it wanted to get the UK on board. And if it did that, then uh, an agreement would be possible double quick time. But the things that Marc Francois talks about in that letter and that British politicians generally talk about are the unacceptable nature of the various things that the EU suggests or proposes in way of agreements. So we know that the UK doesn't like the Court of Justice having any role in the architecture of dispute settlements. We know that they don't like the proposals on fisheries. We know that they don't like the level playing field obligations, which come with uh, uh, commitments in effect to align to EU standards on workers' rights and environmental protection. But what we are less clear about is what the UK does like. Now, we have a set of texts that the UK had uh, produced uh, earlier in the spring, but only more recently has released for discussion uh, publicly. And whilst they set out a, a, a range of issues, what they don't really do is establish a uh, clear uh, framework for the ongoing management of the relationship. And I think this has been the big message of the last three, four months, the coronavirus impact and effect, which is that the question we have to ask ourselves, not just about this relationship, but more generally about political and economic systems, is one of resilience. How do we make systems that work for a changing world? The paradox that we have in the UK at the moment is that uh, the government is keen to push on to a future without specifying what that future might actually be and what the EU, the, the UK's uh, role in it might be. So to take one example, we've had the decision about rolling DFID into the Foreign Office, which uh, comes uh, ahead of a report, the BU report, which is due late this summer, uh, which will talk about what the UK's position in the world might be and a consideration of its uh, external relations. Now, that makes no logical sense to have a organisational reform uh, before you actually know what you are organisationally reforming for. And similarly, here in the case of the EU relationship, we have a push for a set of uh, relations without really having sight of what the impact of coronavirus will be on the changing nature of the UK, of its international relations, and indeed the operation of the EU as well. This unwillingness to think strategically is a perennial problem for the UK. And as I've long said on this podcast and elsewhere, a major problem that it faces is it doesn't know why it's doing Brexit. It comes up with lots of different reasons, lots of arguments. Uh, but what's the point? What's it for? You know, why do, what's the logic behind it? 
If we don't have an answer to that, or at least a story that we can broadly uh, get behind, it becomes very hard to know what we should be trying to work towards instead. That notion of strategic planning, of resilience, goes together. And it's a problem not just for the UK, but also for the EU, as it has to accommodate the changed realities of a world that no longer is on a glide path to globalization, if it ever was. However, the problems that uh, come with that, I think, are only likely to become apparent at the point at which our ability for action becomes more constrained. So again, to come back to timelines, uh, the push for an agreement is undoubtedly that much stronger uh, than it was because now we've got a much clearer sense of how much time there is. And this was part of the British calculation that a key part of its leverage was always going to come from being able to uh, say to the EU, well, look, we know that you don't want to lose access to us, a major market, and we're important, and uh, you don't want to risk that, and this will hurt you. Without really thinking about the flip side, which is that a non-agreement would hurt the UK even more. But whilst we have this pressure towards an agreement, the lack of time means that the scope for trying to be able to do everything at once in a way that is durable and set settled and resilient looks ever smaller. So probably we end up with something that is a stopgap measure, something to get us through the next little uh, crisis, the next cliff edge, and set up a next stage of discussion and negotiation. So when we talk about getting Brexit done, we have this possibility that we may well end up with some minimal or nominal agreements at the end of the year, possibly involving some further transitional elements to soften the blow, but with uh, a recognition on both sides that this needs to be an ongoing discussion and negotiation in terms of further cooperation. And here I think we've got uh, a further lack of clarity on the British part. How much is this about finding a deal that uh, meets British requirements, in which case we still have the problem we don't know what those British requirements are, and how much is it simply about taking anything just so that we can move on to something else? Here, we still don't really have any great insights. We haven't had any particularly useful debate about uh, that uh, tension between the two. And we can certainly see some very different points of view uh, that uh, broadly span the spectrum from they're lucky to get anything from us to uh, we really need to have a close, deep uh, relationship in the long run with the, uh, the EU. All of that, I think, takes us then to a situation where the next six months are likely to be 
another missed opportunity to try and pull this towards some more stable uh, process, if not necessarily outcome. As we'll see in the next few weeks, when we have these accelerated rounds of talks, we might well see some more scope for building uh, across the gaps. But until we get uh, another high-level discussion to pull the two sides together, it's hard to see how we get to anything like that uh, colour-coded uh, joint text that uh, you'll remember David Davis and Michel Barnier uh, produced uh, during the Article 50 process. The reason for that is that we've got some very big trade-offs uh, on different and discrete elements to juggle. And it probably serves both sides to be able to present a joint text that uh, pulls that together in a way that is uh, more balanced rather than trying to say, well, we've sorted this problem and we've sorted that problem. So don't expect an awful lot to come out of the next month. Maybe uh, if we are uh, optimistic, we might have some big movement before uh, August, but more likely I think it will be September before we get to anything like uh, a joint text. And even then, that's probably uh, pushing it somewhat. September is also an interesting time because it's the time at which the UK's lead negotiator, David Frost, is due to start his other job that he's just been given, namely Chief Security, uh, National Security Advisor for the British government. The briefing was that he would only take up that post when he stopped being Chief Negotiator, but the suggestion was that that would be in September. And clearly this was meant as a sign that that was the kind of schedule that Downing Street was working to. However, I think it also points to the lack of clear signalling that the UK gives about this set of negotiations. That uh, you have had a very high degree of uh, persistence of personnel, most obviously in the person of Michel Barnier on the EU side, a man who at one point was being discussed as a potential new commission president, but who uh, ended up staying in this role of lead negotiator uh, for the long run. By contrast, the UK side has seen a succession of different ministers, chief negotiators, uh, and that this is seen as a staging post to other things. But there's also a paradox, which is that by giving Frost this uh, promotion, or certainly, well, there is a promotion, to uh, uh, National Security Advisor, it also signals that the number 10 team think that there is a degree of success, that he has made a good fist of things. Now, either that's because uh, they want to kind of uh, say that they think they're doing well, or because they anticipate that there is a successful conclusion to that. Now, what makes a successful conclusion for the UK? Is it a deal of any kind? Is it a deal 
that protects British interests? Is it just, you know, making sure that the UK doesn't get uh, stiffed by the EU, which may include a no deal? Right now, we don't really know what the metric is and what the benchmark is. And clearly, if we run into big problems or delays or controversies around the negotiation, then there will be question marks about whether Frost is to blame and if he's not to blame, who is to blame. Now, uh, I'm not really a great one for uh, blaming people. Uh, I assume that people try in good faith to do the right thing. But the problem here is that at this stage, uh, nobody seems to be particularly in control of the process. So let's take this time to think a bit about what we've learned from the first five months of transition, which is it's quite difficult to move beyond it, and think about what that means for the next six months. Importantly, as well as the negotiations, we need to keep an eye on the preparations that the UK puts in place. For me, this is the greatest mystery of the process so far, that even if the UK gets exactly what it wants in this process, it still needs to put in place a huge amount of infrastructure, of regulation, of regulatory bodies, of processes and procedures, not just for itself, but also for businesses that need to adapt. And yet, we still don't have pretty much any of the detail that is necessary for those things to happen. We don't have the recruitments of customs agents. We don't have the building of infrastructure at ports and airports. We don't have the detailed processes that uh, different user groups will need to have. We've seen some reports today about uh, potential plans for uh, freight passing through ports which will rely on a system that doesn't exist yet, let alone uh, hasn't been commissioned, hasn't been built, hasn't been tested. And a large-scale IT project run by the government is the kind of phrase that would give you pause for thoughts about whether that's realistic. So the government doesn't seem to prepare for any outcome, which for me, raises more red flags than uh, any of the discussion in negotiations. As a general rule of thumb, there are things you control and things you don't control. The things you don't control, well, you can try to convince others to help uh, change them for you to suit your needs, but there's still a bunch of stuff that you can do to look after yourself and to protect yourself from the worst of the things that you can't control. The concern is that this government doesn't seem to be doing any of those things. Now, how much of a problem that will be, unfortunately, I think we will only really see in January of next year. By which time, of course, it will be too late to do very much. On that cheery note, I will leave you. Uh, I hope that your lockdown, whatever condition it is, is going all right. And I will record another episode, not too far into the future. And we have a look and see how those accelerated talks are going and whether that trip to Brussels that's happening this week by David Frost and his team 
uh, yields any fruit. Until then, goodbye.